Big news in the aggressive life. We're coming up on our one millionth download. And to celebrate that milestone, we're giving away some of the good stuff that's been featured on the podcast. Bottle of bourbon, tickets to man camp, some outdoor gear, and much, much more. In fact, women camp too. We should get women camp. It's got free tickets to women camp, free tickets to everything. There's only one way to get entered into the drawing to win. Leave a rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. All the written reviews will be entered into a hat and we'll draw out winners live on an upcoming recording of the podcast. How long is the contest open? I don't know. Depends on when we hit the 1 million mark, but it won't last long. Leave your review and you just might win big and you might actually help us. Come on, help a brother out. We want to get this podcast in many people's lives and hands and earbuds as possible. And for that to happen, we need good reviews. So go do that and let's get to the show. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. I'm joined in studio right now. With a guy I had lunch with a few years ago, we had to connect with one another and had the ability to sit down in the podcast. I said, yeah, let's let's go ahead and have Edgar do that. So we're going to talk about, what do you think? We're going to talk about being aggressive. And this man has been aggressive. Aggression brings momentum. One aggressive move, it might be all you need to actually get moving. I've seen it again and again. And this guy is a guy who has moved. He was born in L.A. He grew up in Central and South America. At the age of 18, he came back to America, 50 bucks in his pocket and a goal to become an engineer. And where did that dream land him? Flipping burgers. (laughs) That's where it landed him. But aggression doesn't stop. It keeps moving. You keep building. And after he was told that he didn't get into the engineering school at Rutgers, the admission counselor suggested sociology. So Edgar decided to get two degrees. Why not? Two degrees, not just one, two, sociology and engineering. He went on to be at a premier big box producing company, you may have heard of, called Procter & Gamble or P&G. He was responsible for the hashtag Like a Girl campaign that went viral during 2015 Super Bowl. Enormous social impact. His career was up and to the right at PNG. People had him seen as CEO material and all <laughs> kinds of things that, that, you know, people. He's kind of a big deal. I don't know. He's kind of a big deal. And he made the aggressive move of leaving the beautiful world of corporate America and all the financial security to be the CEO of a nonprofit. Guess, guess what happens at nonprofits? You don't make any profit. That's what happens. Everyone's like, oh, nonprofit. I want to go. Yeah, you know what that means? That means you're always in financial stress mode. Or if, if you're not in financial stress mode in a nonprofit, you're not doing it right. I interact with some of these nonprofits who've got this, this crazy, ridiculous amount of cash on hand. And I'm like, dude, your vision isn't big enough. If you've got that much cash on hand, your vision isn't big enough. Anyway, here with me today is Edgar Sandoval Sr. <laughs> hey, Brian. It's 
Thank you for that. I need to hire you into my public relations uh, team, by the way. But thank you so much. It's, it's an honor, and I'm humbled by the invitation. I saw you put senior. I didn't know you were a senior. You have a, you have a little I got idea? a junior one. Yeah, I got a junior one. He's a, he's a musician. He's a, he's a creative type. So uh, he's junior. I'm, I'm senior. Yeah. Man, that is good. So yeah. you, we came in the studio, and we had uh, one of our good staff members was, was, was in. He was kind of hanging out and talking with you in your Espanol language, correct? Yeah, yeah I, I, as you said, I well, just a little bit of background. Yeah. I was, uh, I'm the third child of Guatemalan immigrants. So my parents immigrated to the States back in the 1950s. My dad joined the U.S. Army. He was crazy. He joined the uh, Airborne 82nd Division, jumping out of airplanes. He came out of the Army, settled in Los Angeles, and so the three of us were born. And uh, but, but then we moved back, to, or he moved back to Guatemala. And then he got an offer to move to Venezuela. We've never been to Venezuela. So moved to Venezuela. My dad doesn't have a college, didn't have a college education, but he had learned some trade skills in manufacturing. At the time, Venezuela was just booming, booming with natural resources. They were importing a lot of talent. So I moved to Venezuela. And uh, it was a wonderful, I grew up, so I grew up in Venezuela. And that's why my my first language, even though I'm an American, is really Spanish. And it's the language that I'm most comfortable from a social standpoint. But my first job was in the U.S. So from a professional standpoint, standpoint, I'm more comfortable in English, if that makes sense. I th- well, I think that's what part of makes you so impressive. For you to get to the upper ranks of PNG and have a significant impact there with your second language, that's that's really crazy. I heard someone tell me that even if you are fluent in your second language, you're at a disadvantage because you're not inherently with certain conversations. Is that true? Explain that for well, us. Well, I, I believe that. I, I came back to the U.S. So, so just a little bit of background. So after spending 12 years in Venezuela, my family fell in hard times. And at one point, there was enough food to eat on the table. And so unhealthy coping mechanisms like the television disappear, well, they had to sell it. The car disappear, well, they had to sell it. And at, some, at some point, um, in fact, I remember my, my high school uh, friend, every now and then would come with grocery bags with basic staples, flour, beans, rice, and oil. I, mean, I was so grateful to him for bringing this, you know, this food to my house. I learned, later learned that it wasn't him. It was actually my high school teacher who was buying the groceries. She just didn't want when me to know. When your teacher's buying yeah, your groceries, exactly. you, know you're, you know you're hurting. Exactly. But she just didn't want me to know. She wanted to protect my dignity, all that kind of stuff. Bottom line, there was I couldn't just stay in Venezuela. So I packed everything I owned, which was not a lot, in my dad's army duffel bag. I had 50 bucks in one pocket, my American passport in the other pocket, and I came back, came back to the— good old USA. But I, when I came back, I couldn't speak the language. And so I was lonely, I was broke, and I really, truly felt like an immigrant in my own country. So to go from that, and in fact, a couple of years later, I actually started my education in an English as a second language community college. So to go from that to the corporate ivory towers of Procter & Gamble, um, you know, a, a, a company that prides itself in doing best-in-class communication it's truly a God story. That's the only way I can explain it. So you had your citizenship because you were born in America. I was born in Los Angeles, yes. Uh, Los Angeles or, or Los Angeles? Los Angeles. <laughs> 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 Los Angeles. 
There's that whole, remember that old Saturday Night Skip with that Jimmy Smith was doing that? Yeah. I just want to get one thing clear, though. Yes. I was born in Los Angeles, but I'm a Bengals fan. I just want to get that on the record. Okay? Well, who isn't a Bengals exactly. fan after yeah, exactly. Super Bowl That's, run? Well, I've been a Bengals fan for all my for, for 21 years. You I, have been. I, I lived in Cincinnati for 21 years, and my kids and I grew up watching the Bengals every Sunday. And so for the Super Bowl, we all got together in Texas, and we watched the Super Bowl. And it was unfortunate that we lost, but it was a great time. Is that where you live in Texas? My, my son, Junior, lives in Texas. All right. So we went to see him and spend the, the Super Bowl together. I want to get to Texas and yeah. Guatemala. Yeah. Uh, we're going we're gonna to make some aggressive moves and talk about some things that people don't want to talk about. But that's why it's called the aggressive life. Yeah. Some people don't want to talk about. But I'm curious when you, when you are in a situation where a school teacher is getting you basic sustenance. Mm. And that's obviously poverty. If a school teacher is helping you live, that's... That's not, I don't know how I'm going to hit my credit card bill this week. That's food insecurity. That's all the things that are just really rough to deal with. But fortunately, I haven't had to deal with. So I'm curious if you dealing with those things and then you pop into a high paying job at Procter & Gamble, are you able to just kind of shake that off and you just enjoy the fruits of your labor at Procter & Gamble or are there seeds of guilt or is there coping mechanisms to now having money? What's that like? Well, that's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I will say that um, having experienced food insecurity, having experienced not having a roof over my head, having experienced having to start from the bottom, um, it just it just gave me a desire that on on one in, in the one hand it was healthy, on the other hand it may not have been so healthy to take control of everything. I was not gonna be hungry again. I was not gonna be. Uh, there was going to be no uncertainty in my life. I planned everything from now on, and we're going to do things my way. And so um, I just—and and I saw education as the way out, as the way out of my my, my circumstances. And so, no, I, I frankly, if, if I joined—I uh, started in English as a second language community college. Then I was accepted to Rutgers. You're right. The admissions counselor said— you want to be an engineer? You can't because your score, your SAT scores are not good enough. I tried to explain to her in my broken English mm. that when I took the SAT, I couldn't get through the whole thing because I didn't understand it because it was in a foreign language. But if she had graded me only on the questions that I finished, I think I probably aced the test. I just didn't finish the test. Mm. <laughs> uh, she looked at me and said, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, study sociology. And so as you said, I did. I studied sociology, but I didn't let go of my original dream and also studied engineering. And in fact, I w- when I graduated, I was in the Honor Society of the Engineering Department. And get this, 20 years later, the dean of the School of Engineering asked me to come back and do the commencement speech. Wow. And then three years after that, when Rutgers hit 250 years as a university, they named me as one of their 250 fellows of the university, which is just bizarre. It's just a God story. But then, and from there, I went to an Ivy League school to get my MBA at the Wharton School of Business. By the time I hit PNG, I think I had I have forgotten what it what it was to be poor mm. and what it was to have uncertainty. So I, I thought that the rest of my life would be in corporate America. And as you probably know, at, at PNG, when you leave, you normally cash in your your equity, okay? If you're a PNG and you're a vice president, you can probably be a senior vice president somewhere else. If you're a senior vice president, you can probably be a, a chief something somewhere else. So I thought I was going to do more in the corporate environment when I left PMG. But the Lord had different plans. He asked me to put all that aside and to leave my position of comfort and to just move to Seattle, Washington and go serve the poor. 
And um, I now see that everything that happened in my life, including my 20 years at the Procter & Gamble Company, they were only preparation for the real assignment that God had for me, which is to lead World Vision today and to help and do all I can to eliminate extreme poverty. And that's where I'm focused on now. So that's what Edgar does now. He's uh, the CEO of one of the most respected nonprofits and largest nonprofits in the land, World Vision. And for someone like me, someone like me who's in the nonprofit world or somebody else who has another job that, you know, is a bit more normal, that might sound really sexy to be CEO of World Vision, but that was a real sacrifice for you to go from the corporate perks to where you are right now, right? <laughs> you could say it that way, yes. Yeah. Like, what, so what'd you end up sacrificing? Well, at the time, when I got the first call, I said, no. <laughs> I said, no, not now, maybe in the future. Um, and so I talked to my wife, and, and they kept calling. I said, hey, um, honey, uh, you know, let me give you some background. We have four kids. Two of them have special needs. We had a very strong support system in Cincinnati. One of the reasons I we love Cincinnati is the people that supported us with our disabled ch uh, children were just wonderful, and we love them for that. And so we had built a support system for my wife and for, for the children, and I just couldn't think about uprooting them and taking them to a whole new place. So that was a fact. But there was also fear, and there was a stronghold of money, right, of, well, I'm, I don't want to give up money. Um, I didn't have money. Now I have money. I don't want to give it up. So there was also that stronghold that I didn't want to acknowledge at the time. And so I had a bit of a twisted plan. I was going to ask my wife, Lisa, to be the one to say no to World Vision. <laughs> so I went to her and said, honey, can you imagine this? The, you know, uproot the children, the support system for Andrea and Christina to leave and, you know, you, this is going to be too hard on you. Just say, say the word and I'll put a stop to this nonsense. Well, I remember this vividly, Brian, because we were in our bedroom. We were standing up next to the window. She looked at me in the eyes and she said, Edgar, if the Lord wants us to go to World Vision, we're going to be obedient. And he has always provided and he will provide again. And that was the end of my plan. And um, I could probably do another podcast, but the short story is the Lord pointed out directly and said, this is what I want for you and for Lisa. And uh, I've learned that when, the, when you have clarity of what the Lord wants for your life, that's the time to surrender. And so, yes, there was a lot that I was leaving behind. And someone could see that as, wow, that was very courageous that you gave all that up. But <clears throat> I like to think about it this way. There's really nothing very courageous about surrendering to the will of God because you know he goes before you. And so things are going to be okay. He's leading the way. It's also a story of you just making the next step, right? You're going, well, I'm going to Rutgers. Okay, I'm not doing engineering. I'm doing sociology. Okay, I'm going to add. I'm going to add engineering on to sociology. Okay, I'm going to P&G. Oh, okay, you know, there's, there's, this, there's this movement, this process of just continuing to move. And I think so many of us, we, we don't like to move. We like to think that, I only have one more move, and I'm staying right there. Right. Or, or, what's the big move? What's my purpose in life? Yeah, right, when I talk with my kids, they, they say, Dad, I just want to fulfill my purpose. I tell you what your purpose is. 
Do what you have in front of you as well as you can. And then doors are going to open. And some doors are going to close. Be prayerful in which ones you walk through. And if the doors close, don't, don't, don't bust them open. You know. but, but to your point, I didn't have a vision to be the CEO of World Vision. I didn't have a vision to, uh, to be a senior vice president of the Procter & Gamble company. I just took it one step at a time and took one move at a time. Yes, they felt scary. Each single move felt scary a little bit on its own, which makes it in a way aggressive, intentional. But the, the, the bottom line is you have to be willing to step into the unknown. And, and then you can look back and say, wow, look, look what the Lord has done by just saying yes to each step along the way. One of the ways that you've schooled me, Edgar, is, uh, well, actually you haven't, your people at World Vision have schooled me through some of uh, our folks here at Crossroads, is some of the stuff that's happening in Mexico or Mexico. I did take two years of Spanish. I keep saying I'm going to get back on it, and I just, I just haven't. You come from Guatemala, which is in the, what's it called? The something triangle? The Northern Triangle, yeah. The Northern Triangle. Which is uh, Guatemala, uh, Honduras, and El Salvador. Uh, This is is new learning for me. I'm still trying to think about it and how I'm going to engage on it. School us all on the Northern Triangle, those countries that are not Mexico, and how that is impacting our our border crisis here in America and immigration. This is a, just an incredibly like divisive topic. And yes, that's why it's called the aggressive life. And half of you are about to get pissed off right now, right now. And what's really crazy is probably no one's pissed off. I just said pissed, but they're gonna be pissed off now because we just, uh, I, I, I think, and, and here's where I'm going here on this. I think that we are as people, we're more angry than we've ever been because we don't have margin in our life. Uh, We can't handle being part of a church that doesn't toe the line on everything I believe because I'm just, I'm I'm maxed. I don't have margin. And I'm not talking about schedule margin at work. I'm talking about emotionally, I am just done. Emotionally, I can't, I don't like what's happened with COVID. I don't like people who are wearing masks. I don't like people who don't wear masks. I don't like people who are who are debating uh, getting immunized. I don't like people who aren't immune. I don't I don't like how the schools do. I don't like how everyone. There's something for all of us that we don't like, right? And so that 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 margin we used to have of oh, you'd think that hmm, I don't know that I agree with that, but uh, oh, okay. Um, I'll let you think that or ask you questions or at least not get mad, but okay. We, we, that requires a level of emotional margin. Right. We don't have that emotional margin. So everything is like, you're good, you're bad. You're smart, you're stupid. You're woke, you're unwoke. You're biblical, you're unbiblical. You're weenie boy, you're weenie, weenie girl, whatever it is. And so when it comes to this, this uh, the border crisis, very few of us have margin to hear something we might not have heard before but yet I want you to do that. Tell us about the Northern Triangle and what that means for us in immigration. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack this from the top. Um, okay. I'll just start by saying there is— Which I wasn't planning on talking about this, that's, that's okay. but I was like, oh, why not? That's okay. Let's do it. So that's go ahead. Okay. We can try. The first thing I'll do is dimensionalize what's happening. And what we have is a situation that was um, dire, becoming desperate. And, and so— Imagine that you're 
you live in communities that depend on on predictable weather patterns, so you know when to plant, how you're going to water your crops, et cetera. Imagine that just changing. And so for three years, you have a drought. Okay, that's a problem. Um, then COVID hits, and so now you have, uh, you've had loss of livelihoods. Now you have loss of life through COVID. And, oh, by the way, during COVID, you get two major hurricanes hit your communities within two weeks of each other. So that's like a and major, I'm talking a Category 4 and a Category 5 within two weeks. That's like Mike Tyson hitting you with a left and a right jab at the same time. And so all of that happening in a context where there's, um, unfortunately, gangs and violence. Um, and so loss of life, loss of livelihoods, leading to loss of hope. And you got kids, and you got a wife, or you got a husband, and you got family, a grandma, and they're not eating, and, and they fear for their lives. What do you do? You just kind of like, what do you do? Well, you look for a better, that's an aggressive move. You look for a, a way better for your life, whatever that means. You, just, you don't just sit there and you look for an aggressive life, right? You do something for your family. Now, I, in my opinion, this is Edgar's opinion. I think the debate that's being had is not the right debate. There's this debate of, do you let them in or do you send them back? That's, a, that's, that's an okay debate to have. But I don't think as yeah, that's why it's a crisis. No matter where you are on the political front, it's a crisis because no one likes what's happening right now. But it, it, and even as Christians, I don't think that's the right debate. I could make a case that sending them back is a defensible position. Okay, I I think that's part of the fact that we don't have dialogue anymore. It's like either you're I'm right and you're wrong and everything, <laughs> or you're right and I'm wrong and everything. No, I think there's a defensible position to be made for sending folks back. It's a defensible position. There's also a defensible position for letting them in, okay? But in my view, that's not the debate that we need to have as Christians. The debate that we need to have as Christians, in my view, Scripture-based, is what are you doing to help them, whether there, back there, or here, okay? That's the question for us as Christians. And at World Vision, we are focused on helping them with hope at home, that's what we're focused on. Why? Because we believe, and I believe this, that no one likes to leave the people they love and the places they know. They leave because they're desperate. And I know this because that's why I left. Okay, Venezuela. I left because I was desperate. Now, I happen to have an American passport, but I had an immigrant in my own country experience. And so we're focused on, on giving them hope at home. Now, for the ones that are here... I spend some of my weekends tutoring kids of immigrants who don't know how to get into college, just like I didn't know how to get into college, okay? So just, letting, just sending them back or letting them in, in my view, is not the main debate. The main debate is what are we going to do to help them here or there? And World Vision is focused on giving them hope at, ho- hope at home. And let me tell you, Brian, we know what works. Our programs work. We have 70 years of experience in development. We, have, we do the research. We have the evidence, the proof that when we come alongside communities and empower them with the tools to lift themselves out of poverty, they can. And that's what we're focused on doing. We are uh, focused on raising the resources so we can give people hope at home. The Northern Triangle, which sounds awkward for us because for, uh, for me, it's the Southern Triangle, but in terms of South America, it's the Northern Triangle. 
it was really a head tilt to learn that all, all, 90-some percent, you may, you may know this because it's your job, 90%, 90-some percent of what's happening at the border isn't from people in Mexico who are trying to get over. It's people who are jumping over Mexico, walking through Mexico from those northern places to get the border. Like when I learned that, I was like, wow, that's we're, we're reframing it entirely wrong. It's, it's, it's not, not Mexicans, which wouldn't be bad if it was Mexicans, but to realize, man, this is an aggressive move. You're talking about, you're talking about people who are doing like the most aggressive thing you could possibly think of. Like I'm thinking myself, like, could life get so bad for me that I would take my family, walk, drive, thumb, whatever, all the way across Canada to get to Greenland? Right. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, Greenland would want me. I think they would want me. I'm not saying I'm the best of the best, but what I'm saying is if there was a bunch of people who had the drive, the initiative, the self-starting gene— the ability to go through hardship for a vision, you fill up a country with those kind of people, that country is going to go someplace. This has been actually pretty well documented. The reason why the United States is so far ahead of Europe, at least one of the leading theories, is because we scraped all the entrepreneurs off of Europe back in the 1700s. These people who just had this vision and drive and would take a risk of getting on a boat and going across the ocean. That's why America has always outgunned England in terms of innovative ideas and patents and all of these things. So I'm not, I'm not ignoring that we need to have some reform. I'm not ignoring that we, we can't just say, hey, everybody come in here and take advantage of all of our social safety nets. I, I, I know this is very complicated, but I, I think it's important for us to see when someone is doing these kind of things, that's an impressive person that we need more of that attitude in our own country, I think. I think the point that you're making also is it's exacerbated in the world today. We have uh, the, the largest number of people that have been displaced, that have left their homes in the history of the world at over 84 million people. So this is, yes, we see it here closer to the U.S. in the Northern Triangle, in, in Guatemala, in Honduras, in Mexico. But this is happening all over the world. And so again, again, the debate that I would argue Christians need to have is what can we do to help people thrive at home? That because, because as you've said, it's very dangerous to make the perilous journey into wherever it is that they're going. Um, and so that's, that's where we're focused. We're focused on, on empowering communities to, to have hope at home. And, and we're doing tremendous work with the support of our, of our donors. Did you know, um, Brian, that we are the largest, World Vision is the largest non-governmental provider of clean water in the world. Mm. We provide clean water to a new person every 10 seconds. Every 10 seconds, a human being had never tasted clean water. The World Vision is now tasting clean water. We have a, um, a big-size goal to bring clean water to everyone, everywhere we work, by, and we work in over 100 countries, by the year 2030. That's, that's, and, and water is the foundation. We are, um, farmers are lifting themselves out of poverty. They start at less than $1.90 a day, and they multiply their incomes through our, our, our programs, which are a combination of biblical concepts, 
like you were creating the image of God. And yes, you can lift yourself out of poverty with our best in class sectorial livelihoods, like the right farming practices, right seeds, access to free markets, and they're lifting themselves out of poverty. Um, nine out of 10 ch- se- severely malnourished children who are treated by World Vision make a full recovery. Yes, the, the, the world is a, it's a dark place today, but there's a lot of good stories. And my plea to anyone who's listening to your podcast is to let's have the right debate. The right debate is how do we help people have hope at home? Yes. Yeah. Amen. You're bringing us just a really needful reminder that we make so much about debates and right and wrong and political ideology instead of people. That's what you're trying to root us in. It's people. I like how you said that position is defensible. That position is like that could. I, I like. I like how you say that. But where you got to die on the hill is we've got to be about the flourishing of people. That's right. And 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 that includes people who are outside of the country I live in. At least, at least if I'm a follower of Christ, this is not a follower of Christ podcast. It's not called. Christian living podcast. It's called the aggressive life. But as as a believer, I I have I have no boundaries to our country. I love our country. I I never want to live anywhere other than our country. I've been to a lot of other countries in the world. I've, I've yet to come to a country that I'd rather live in than America. And that's when I go to other countries. I go to some of the greatest places in those countries, in Paris, and all that kind of stuff. You know. I love my country. I'm not devaluing my country at all, but I'm part of a kingdom that's much bigger than America. It's called the kingdom of God. And and I have to have some way to express love to people who are in hard places that are outside the borders. Mm-hmm. So I I love you reminding me of that. That's that's a really good word, Edgar. Thanks. Well, we have a, this thing called the lightning round. <clears throat> I have a feeling this is going to be hard because I have a feeling you're a deep thinker. You're going to say deep things. I'm going to want to have you unpack, but let's try it anyway. The lightning round. Have you ever listened to The Aggressive Life, Edgar? I have not. You have not? I'm Who sorry. are you? Honestly, well, you, it's you, one of my principles. You can't come on The Aggressive Life when you haven't listened to The Aggressive but, but Life. But they told me Brian was going to yell a lot. That's what that's the only thing they warned me about. <laughs> okay. Man. I don't know. Dirt, did Matthew McConaughey, did he listen to The Aggressive Life? I don't know, but he should have. He will after today. Uh, that's right. <laughs> he will after today. Absolutely. We've had some big-time people, Edgar. They had time to listen to the, 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 the Aggressive Life. I understand we're not big-time enough for you. Up in your ivory tower, up in World Vision CEO, just handing out soup to poor people. I know you don't have room in your schedule for us. But nonetheless, okay, here we go. Lightning round is going to work. I give you a topic, and you got to hit it like real fast, like lightning. Ooh, like okay. one, two sentence answer. That's hard. That's really hard, but I'll I know it's hard, but I, I believe you. All you right. can do it. Normally, I'm the one who breaks the rules because someone says something. I say, ooh, expand on that more. So here we go. How to get aggressive momentum when you feel stuck? Remember your calling, remember your gifting. The work that you are most proud of that isn't World Vision? My marriage, because it takes work. 
Dude, he's good. You see, he's he's like playing by the rules. You're you're a corporate rule follower. I told you one or two senses. You're you're doing that. I thought you were. I just hit the pause button. And the light went out for a moment. I thought you were going to say something like your uh, your campaign that you invented and ran at PNG, like a girl. Tell tell us about that campaign. I'm very proud of the like a girl campaign, uh, but I'm proud of my marriage. Um, and so you'll be a close second or third. But that was. Probably the, one of the most, from a professional standpoint, one of the most fulfilling times in my in my career. Can I break the rules? Yes, yes, is, I, 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 yes. Okay, so uh, having I was working uh, with with Proctor, and I, we were traveling around the world, talking to uh, teenagers around the world, all kinds of religions, socioeconomic statuses, you name it. They all had one thing in common: when they hit puberty, their confidence dropped. In fact, statistically, we measured it; it drops twice as much as young young guys. Okay, and you know, we were a brand for young girls, and we thought that was not right. Um, we, you know, God made um, every each one of us in His image, and so women and girls dropping the confidence that way, we felt it was not something that we felt it was something we wanted to go against. So we declared the loss of confidence in young young women our public enemy number one, and we wanted to defeat it. Well, on the way back from a big advertising festival in, in Cannes. I, I was inspired to write a creative brief to our agency. And the Procter & Gamble creative briefs had a history of being very long and very wordy. This one was very short. I wrote to my agency said, let's create a new viral campaign that changes the world one girl at a time. And, and the rest is history. A year later, um, actually, we launched the campaign in the summer of 2014. It went viral, 85 million views. Uh, I'm, I'm so proud that it did a couple of things. One is it changed the meaning of a phrase to do something like a girl from an insult to a compliment. I have four kids, three of them are daughters. And um, before we launched the campaign, I understand the, the, we had about 19% of people thought that doing something like a girl was a compliment. When we finished a year later, that number had been up to like 76, 79%. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of, um, of the way we unified the country and the world. Everybody was saying, yeah, this is, this is right. Yeah, and so it was yeah. great to see, particularly in, in, in the context of today's divisions, to see everyone come alongside and support something. I've learned recently that there's a university curriculum somewhere in Africa that uses the Like a Girl campaign. Mm -hmm. They campaign 170 million award, uh, sorry, 170 global awards, um, including an Emmy. Um, so those are some of the things I'm proud about uh, as far as that campaign is concerned. Well, let's camp out here. We might not even get back to lightning round. This is this is really interesting. I'm, 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 this is not a man podcast, though. I think we have a disproportionate number of men who who listen to this to this podcast. Um, uh, known and actually criticized by some for them thinking that I'm only about men. I'm not only about men. I I do have a passion for women. I'm married to a wife. <laughs> I got two out of three daughters. And this is what I want us to talk about here. There's something about women that is just special. That's, that's hard to articulate in terms of the importance in the, in the world. You mentioned that girls and adolescents have problems, significant problems. Women, even in a male-dominated country like America, where you still have, um, you know, where, where men have most of the top offices and such, and women are made massive, massive advances, 
women still have it more difficult. I don't know of another guy, any guy who would say, I would rather have the life of a woman than the life of a man. When you look overseas or in areas of poverty, we know this at Crossroads, you're always building into women. You're building into women because the men aren't there. And as you make microloans to women, women aren't going to pick up and leave. They're going to build into that community. If you look at the people who are kind of coming up to the border, I think they're predominantly women who are bringing their families up, right? Or The vast majority of the people who migrate are women and children. Now, in, at the border, that may not be the same mix. There's, okay. a lot of, there's a lot of men also coming through the border. But when I look at places like Africa and South Sudan and Ethiopia and other places, it's, it's largely women and children because the men stay behind in conflict and fighting or, or other things. So there is a disproportionate amount of women and children who seek refuge in some of the settlements that I'm familiar with. So what, what does this mean about just the makeup of women, the psyche of women? Are women, are you seeing across the world, are they— more aggressive than men? Are they more resilient than men? Are they more, I, I know this is awful to think this way and talk about this this way, but there's enough data points there that just makes you go, hmm, you know, what? What? what is that? Well, I, I will tell you, we have, uh, at World Vision, we, we recognize the value of women um, and we have a whole sort of uh, ministry that we call Strong Women, Strong World. And he recognizes that women can be a very powerful force of change in their communities. Yeah. The work to be done is to make sure that they are included and that have an equal voice and seat at the table, which doesn't always happen in some of the places where we work. But that's part of the work that we do. And we see tremendous results. I do think women are resilient. I do think they're strong. And let me give you an example. Um, I just mentioned that our, we are the largest provider of clean water non-governmental uh, provider of clean water in the world. We also know through third-party research that the water wells that World Vision installs, 80% of those wells around the world are working even 20 years later, which compares very favorable to the average, which is about 50%. So that's the what. The why is that women are included in the committees that manage the water wells, okay? And when you think about who has the tough job of fetching the water in the third world, it usually falls on the shoulders of young girls and women. They are the ones that have to do the dangerous trek every day, six kilometers to get buckets of dirty water in their head. And so for them, well-functioning wells, it's it's a critical thing so that they can go to school, they can um, attend to their businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So we believe investing in women has a disproportionate amount in the community, and that's what we're focused on. And we see it, and the data proves it out. So because they're included in the running of the well, the wells are running better. That's exactly right, because they don't want those wells to break. So right. the, the wells go through the right maintenance cycle because the women right. are making sure that the wells go through the right maintenance cycle. In fact, some of the women do the maintenance themselves. I, 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 I never forget this. Yeah. I was in Zambia with uh, one of our ambassadors, Patricia Heaton, from Everyone Loves Raymond in the middle. And we were in the middle of Zambia, in the, the middle of the heat, and the community wanted to teach us yeah how they did the, the, the maintenance on one of the water wells. There were two guys trying to do that. They were failing miserably. Then out of, out of nowhere comes this lady with a hard hat. Yeah. She Get out of the way. She fixed the, she fixed the well in front of us in like 
five minutes. Right. Uh, what the guys couldn't do, she got it done. But it, it, it is critical for the, for the women to be empowered and to have an equal seat at the table and to be trained to take control of their destiny. It's just interesting that poverty always looks and smells the same. Extreme poverty always looks and smells the same. You could drop me in the middle of Nicaragua where I've been. You could drop me in the middle of uh, the poorest township in South Africa where I've been. You could drop me in the middle of, I mean, just you mentioned countries here I haven't been. It always smells and looks the same. It smells like burning green wood to cook fires and you smell it everywhere and it looks the same with just dirt everywhere, no grass, whatever it can be for shanties. And it's always women who are in the house, like the kids I sponsor for through Compassion International. I've yet to meet a dad. I sponsor, how many am I sponsor? I've spent a bunch, never met, never had a dad. All the wells I've gone to, it's the women who are, who are always the ones going and drawing water, it's like there's this great evaporation of men, like they're, they're, they're gone. And I'm like, why? Well, what is that? Well, we're working on that too, uh, because we believe uh, our, our ministry is, is biblically based, and we believe that poverty has spiritual root causes. And so we're focused on restoring not just water wells, but restoring relationships. It starts with individual relationships with God and then with each other, husband and wife. It needs to be a partnership in the home, an equal partnership. Then parents and children. How are you treating your children? Are you beating them with sticks? Or are you, you know, trying to get them to go to school? Then it's families and communities, communities and governments. When those relationships are restored, that lays the foundation for then for water wells yeah. to uh, to bring it's it's what accelerates the uh, the development is what accelerates the sense of well-being, but it has to start with the relationships. Edgar, we're about out of time. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked you about? This is your time. This time for you, Edgar. Anything you want to say or dig into that I haven't given you time for? Well, I would just close with uh, a huge thanks for the opportunity, Brian. Um, but I will also say that the world can feel right now like a very dark place, okay? But there are lots lots of bright spots around the world. And what I would ask and encourage everyone is to find, find the, the, the cause, the thing that makes your heart beat a little faster that you can get excited about and go make, go make a difference because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's more joy in giving than in receiving. That's, that's biblical. And, um, and the world needs, the world needs us. There's a desperate need and we can make the world a better place. And there's no better joy than helping the poor change their circumstances and transform their lives. Edgar Sandoval, CEO of World Vision and wise man and aggressive man extraordinaire. Thanks for giving us some time today. Let's definitely do it again. And hey guys, ladies, if you heard something here today, Act on that. Don't 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 come away from here thinking, oh, I got some new interesting thoughts. No, we're here to get you to move on something. Find somebody to help. Find somebody to bless. Find somebody to improve because of your life. Make the aggressive move. Whatever's next in front of you, do it well. Keep moving. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. 
And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.